What's going on, guys? Mike back with another episode of Hobby Talk. Appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to the show. Today's episode will feature not one, but two special guests as we talk about the 2018 Major League Baseball Hall of Fame class. We'll also discuss what the effect on the hobby will be for these players who were elected to the Hall of Fame. And of course, we'll look ahead to 2019, 2020, possibly beyond, what players potentially could get the call to the Hall. Joining us now is Mike Moynihan, known on YouTube as Baseball Collector. Mike is a uh, huge baseball fan, huge baseball collector, and his collection centers around the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame players. So Mike, thank you for joining the podcast today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. And also joining us, Ray Fonio, known on YouTube as Ray from Philly. Ray loves his set registries, loves following baseball, fellow Phillies fan, also big time fan of the Hall of Fame and Definitely uh, happy to have you here, Ray. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, guys, uh, the Hall of Fame class of 2018 was just announced. We got four guys were uh, voted in from the writers. We have Chipper Jones, Vladimir Guerrero, Jim Tomey, and Trevor Hoffman. Four guys got voted in. I know there were a lot of thoughts that we could see five and six. So I just want to start out before we get into some of the hobby, the hobby portion of what this Hall of Fame vote means. I uh, just want to get your thoughts on this year's class briefly. Mike, if you w- would start, were you uh, were you satisfied with these four guys who got in, or did you really expect to see another one? Well, I, I was very satisfied. I thought all four were incredibly deserving players, had great careers, and certainly Hall of Fame careers, in my opinion. Uh, I thought Edgar was going to make it quite frankly, Edgar Martinez. And I have no doubt now that uh, he's definitely on a trajectory to make it uh, next year. But I'm very pleased with his class. And don't forget about uh, Jack Morris and Alan Trammell, too. Yes. the uh, Those two were, what was it, about a month or two ago when they got in? Yeah, in December. So it's it'll be, uh, be interesting to see the six players get in along with... Uh, I guess it's um, Bob Costas as well, correct? Yeah, Costas got the Frick Award this year. And uh, Ray, I know, uh, you know, I talked to you. We kind of, we kind of knew Chipper Jones, Guerrero, and Tomei were definitely locks. It looked like Trevor Hoffman was, you know, definitely on that. I think we all expected him to get in, but uh, Edgar Martinez was the guy who, uh, you know, was really iffy. It did look like he had a shot. Ended up off the ballot. Uh, what are your thoughts on? What transpired here? Uh, I thought Trevor Hoffman was a lot to get in this year after getting so close last year. But Edgar Martinez, yeah, even though he didn't get in, he did trend upwards. So, and that was a, a big trend for him, big increase to go from 50 some percent to 75 this year. But he still made uh, a huge leap to get to 70 percent. So it looks like next year being his last year should get him in without a doubt, and deservedly so. And on the topic of Edgar Martinez, guys, you can you can both speak to this if you'd like. Um, I know there's a lot of people, and you see stuff. Um, you know, I've seen it in in videos, even um, discussed among different people. It's been written about. You know, the designated hitter. Uh, there's a lot of people who seem kind of anti-designated hitter. I've actually seen a few people not necessarily writers or respectable people kind of happy he didn't make it does designated hitter does that bother you at all for me no uh look it's a position on the team it's not his fault uh that that that's where they put him and put him in the lineup and where he he was most effective Uh, all i'll tell you about edgar martinez that you need to know for hall of fame is he hit 312 for his career it's it's he won two batting titles just unbelievable and did a great job in that position, and no, I don't have a problem with it at all. Yeah, I personally, I, I never get that argument, DH. Like, you know, the guy's got to be a really good hitter to get in, obviously, if you're a DH, but like you said, it is a position. It's one of those things and those arguments I've never understood because you have guys who are not good fielders. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't get it. You know, the guy is a three twelve hitter, like you said. When he was playing, I got to be honest, you know, I was – 
a little bit young, you know, in his, in the mid nineties or so was I like 12, 13. So I, you know, I never saw him as one of the major superstars I saw from the Mariner superstars were Ken Griffey and Randy Johnson. So he never had the star factor that those two had. You take a step back and you look back on it and you look at the incredible career, the numbers he put up. It's really hard to argue that he shouldn't be elected to the Hall of Fame. And I don't get the DH thing. I'm not saying you go throw every designated hitter in there, but, uh, you know, it's like if you compare it to other sports, I hear it with football and stuff like that, kickers and punters are like, ah, they don't belong in the Hall of Fame. I'm like, well, if you were the very best at your position for a prolonged period of time, or maybe the best ever, if some people can argue, how are you not a Hall of Famer? How are you not among the elites? Well, Frank Thomas was a designated hitter for a large part of his career. And that doesn't get downed on. You know, t- people don't talk down about that. And I think you kind of have the same situation coming up in a few years with David Ortiz. I, I don't hear many people going, well, he was a DH. Because let's be honest, he was a DH. He played first base sometimes, but he did a lot of his damage as a DH. Yeah, well, if I can interject there, I, David Ortiz is a guy that got 500 homers, and people are not going to have a problem with him. Edgar Martinez, they named the designated hitter award after him. So. That should tell you right there that the guy was a, a great DH. And uh, they had a problem with relief pitchers at first, but now you see there's a lot of relief pitchers going in, the specialty, quote-unquote, specialty positions. So now you're seeing relief pitchers going in with Suter and Gossage and Eckersley. And uh, now with Trevor Hoffman and Mariano will get in. So uh, you'll see Edgar Martinez will start the trend. After him, will be David Ortiz, and then whoever else after that. But uh, it, it's a part. It's a position. They're not playing in the field, but they're hitting. And let's face it, hitting gets a lot more athletes than uh, you know fielding does. So he'll, he'll probably start a trend with DH after next year. Yeah, and there's no doubt. It's hard to argue any of these four. Um, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, obviously, uh, they both get in on the first ballot, had incredible careers. Um, and Guerrero, who I think deserved to be in last year, I, I think Guerrero is, was unbelievable. And I, I think there's a lot of people out there who don't even necessarily understand how good he was, because I think a lot of people missed a lot of his career. I mean, starting out in Montreal, where... For a few seasons, he might have been playing in front of uh, 600 people a game. And uh, then moving out to Los Angeles, um, playing with the Angels, which unfortunately is not a market that really gets a... It doesn't get as much attention as maybe it deserves. Uh, Specifically, you know, on the East Coast with, you know, the big... The number of baseball fans that are in... Uh, time zones that aren't going to stay up till midnight or 1 a.m., 1.30 uh, to watch a lot of those games. But Guerrero was incredible. Um, he used to absolutely torch the Phillies. You can, they throw balls off the plate down and away, and he <laughs> rope it into the corner for a triple. His arm was unbelievable. So Guerrero just had an incredible career. I, I wasn't a huge Trevor Hoffman fan, to be honest with you. Uh, his numbers don't lie, so I have absolutely no problem with him getting in. He was just one of those guys that, I know he was really, really good, but I don't know. There was something about him watching him that I never, I never fully had the trust in him that I had in someone like Marion or Rivera who, who will get in. But you know, again, can't argue it. Uh, had an incredible career. Give you guys both a chance to talk a little bit about Chipper Jones if you want, and then, uh, then we can talk about the other guys. Well, I, Chipper, first ballot Hall of Famer, should be. Um, but Mike, I'll ask you a question. If you were starting a team today, and this goes back to your Vlad should have gotten in last year for sure, who would you rather start your team with? Would you rather have Chipper Jones or Vladimir Guerrero? I mean, I guess if you're starting out at the beginning of their career, well, they sure as hell both had pretty damn good careers. But I got to be honest, I was probably a little bit bigger of a fan of Vlad Guerrero. Um, you know, that's not looking at all the analytics. It's just kind of watching him play when I did. But uh, love the outfield defense, love the arm. Obviously, he had power, hit for a- average. I mean, uh, I'd think Vladimir Guerrero was an incredible player, but obviously they both had awesome careers. Chipper Jones, you know, played third base the majority of his career. I wouldn't say he was a superstar third baseman in terms of defense, but, you know, he was adequate for sure. So I would probably lead Vlad Guerrero, but that's just me. I would too. And Vlad, Vladimir Guerrero was a freak. And that is a ultimate compliment. He had 
200 hit seasons. He had 40 home run seasons. He hit 100 RBIs all the time. He had a 40 stolen base season. I mean, he just did everything and led the league in total bases and won an MVP and was an all-star every year, it seemed like. And that was uh, just a time when, and in a place where he wasn't getting a lot of attention, like you said, but he was doing, putting up numbers that were insane. And he never had more, they said this tonight on the MLB network, and I picked up on it. He never had more than 95 strikeouts in a season, which for a power hitter like that, and most of his years, he had 60, 70 strikeouts. And you would think with the pitches that he would hit, that he would strike out more given his essentially swing at anything attitude. And he just put bat on ball, plain and simple. And a lot of those found holes and he just had an amazing career. Ray, what do you think? He was the best bad ball pitcher, pitch, bad pitch hitter in the, in the history of the game. They should have a, a video last night of him hitting a ball that bounced up to the plate. Yeah. And, uh, you couldn't. You could throw it. You could. You couldn't even intentionally walk the guy. You try and throw the ball way outside. He's still going to hit it and hit it a double or off the wall. I mean, you know, he just had really strong wrist action and strong forearms, and you couldn't get. So the pitcher said last night the best way to get him out was just to throw right down the middle and hope he pop it up because the, he hit the bad pitches better than the good pitches, which is a, that's just amazing to me. Yeah, I know we're supposed to be talking about Chipper Jones right now, but it's hard not to talk about somebody like Vlad who didn't get in last year, but deservedly over 90% this year. And Chipper, you know, he won an MVP in 99. Uh, just, of course, on all those great Braves teams, he was the linchpin in the lineup. They had pitching all around him for sure with Smoltz and Maddox and Glavin and Avery and all those guys, but Chipper was the the guy in the lineup that was there every year, year in and year out, lifetime brave, and uh, just had an amazingly consistent career. He was just really consistent. I think wasn't Chipper Jones second to Mickey Mantle for all-time home runs for a switch hitter? Third behind Mantle and Murray. Third. Murray. Yeah. So, Which is still incredible. Pretty astounding. Yes. Oh, yeah. To hit the ball from one side of the plate, to do it from both sides, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and Chipper had an unbelievable career, and I think one of the reasons, um, you know, he's, I think your average baseball fan, not someone who's a super follower of it, um, maybe your average sports fan would identify Chipper Jones as a Hall of Famer more so than Vladimir Guerrero or quicker, and maybe that's the reason he got in, is the fact he has that identity of playing um, for one team his entire career, has the identity of being an Atlanta Brave. I, I do think that can be an advantage to these guys sometimes. Um, like I said about Guerrero, um, bouncing between Montreal and the Angels, you know, two franchises that never got the attention that the that the Braves did, specifically when the Braves were, you know, a perennial playoff team. So I, I definitely think that was an advantage to Chipper Jones, but obviously Chipper had an, an incredible career. I want to touch on Guerrero real quick with you, Mike, um, before we get into some of the hobby talk. Uh, he did spend a year with Texas. Uh, you're a Texas Rangers fan, so want to kind of just get some brief thoughts on uh, – you know, what it was like to get to watch Vladimir Guerrero play for your team, you know, for a full year in a successful season. And, you know, it was the second to last year of his career, but he had himself a pretty darn good, good year. Yeah, he hit uh, 300 that year. That was 2010. Uh, 29 homers, 115 RBIs. Really solidified our lineup. We had a really good team that year. Went to our first World Series that year, lost to the Giants in four games or five games. But we had Josh Hamilton and Michael Young and some great young players, and Vlad was this galvanizing force. He just did so many things. Uh, Nelly Cruz was on that team, and so we had a really good team, but I think Vladimir Guerrero was the kind of part of the recipe that made it all work and made it all click, and he was insane for us in the playoffs. Uh, just did an amazing job and kind of took us to that next level. And then, Ray, uh want to talk to you a little bit about Jim Tomey. We haven't touched on Tomey very much uh, yet, uh, but Jim Tomey, another first ballot Hall of Famer, 
this guy played 22 years, obviously came up with Cleveland, played, uh, I want to say, the first 10 years or so with the Indians. Uh, then he came to Philadelphia for three years before being traded away to Chicago. And then at after his uh, three or four years stay in Chicago, bounced around for the you know last four or five years of his career. But Ray, Jim Tomey, uh, 612 home runs, just under 1,700 RBIs, certainly struck out a lot more than Chipper Jones or Vladimir Guerrero, uh, didn't hit for quite the average, but uh, Tomey was, um, you know, an all-time slugger. He's among the top guys of all time, home runs per at-bat. Like I said, hit 612 home runs. Um, Want to get a few general thoughts on Tomey, and then uh, then we'll kind of touch on his uh, brief stint in Philadelphia. Well, Jim Tomey, I mean, he quietly just produced every year. He wasn't the guy in the 90s that was really in the limelight, he just went in and out every day. And that 612 homers just crept up on you. People were like, what? He had 612 homers. I mean, he just produced every year. And a team leader, a good guy, and overall a good guy. And he just every year just kept up with 25, 30, 35 homers. During that steroid era when everyone was hitting 50 and 60, he just stayed, he maintained and a level of consistency and excellence every year and produced. And next thing you know, when you see towards the end of the career, the numbers piled up. So that's a tribute to him, especially during the era of that time when who knows was juicing and who knows was not juicing, but he just kept the consistency up year in, year out. And uh, especially on that Indians team where they had Albert Bell and Carlos Baerga and they had some big name players on there. And Jim Tomey just went out and did his job, you know, like yeoman's work, basically. And Tomey, it's surprising because he had such a good career. I mean, he hit 40 home runs, what, probably like five, six times, um, piled up the home runs. He had, I think it was 13 career walk-off home runs, which is the most in baseball yeah, history. Right. Uh, the guy had 17 postseason home runs, so he got to play in the playoffs, yet never won an MVP award. He actually only made five all-star games in 22 seasons, which is kind of unbelievable. So, Mike, uh, you know, I want to know kind of your perspective on Jim Tomey. Scary hitter. Never wanted to see him come up in a clutch situation if he was playing against your team. And he, you know, he never won a ring, which is another kind of, he played in the playoffs a lot with those 90s uh, Indians teams. And it just couldn't, they couldn't ever get him a ring. But, he was just scary. And he, like Ray said, he was just consistent just all the time. Just 30 home runs, 35, 40, 45. He had 52, you know. It's just consistency, and that's what I remember about him the most. All right, Ray. Uh, we got to talk about it for a few moments, and then I promise to anyone out there listening that tuned in to hear some uh, some card talk, uh, we'll get into it a little bit. But uh, Jim Tomey, you know, he at age 31 in 2002, hit 52 home runs with the Cleveland Indians, the final year of his contract. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of rumblings at the end of that season that the Phillies were ready to spend and that they were going to look at some free agents. And they did. They made a full court press to try and sign Tom Glavin. Ultimately failed on that. Glavin decided, uh, unfortunately for him, to sign with the New York Mets. But uh, that's that's beside the point. Uh, he, Jim Tomey, though, mm-hmm did end up coming to Philadelphia, signed with the Phillies for the 2003 season, which was the final year at Veterans Stadium, and was, you know, the plan was to help him, for him to come in and help a, help a young team hopefully get over the top, close out the vet, and open the new ballpark, Citizens Bank Park, which opened in 2004. And uh, Tommy didn't end up disappointing. Uh, his first year led the league with 47 home runs, 130 RBIs, had a great season. The Phillies had a really good offensive team, just didn't have the pitching, fell a few games short of the postseason. Uh, 2004, again, another really strong year, 42 homers, you know, and then after that, unfortunately, uh, sustained an injury. But, Ray, I just want to get your thoughts on, um, as a Philadelphian, as a, as a fan of the Phillies, what was it like when the rumors were out there and you started to hear about the potential of Jim Tomey coming here and then when it actually happened? Well, after him coming off that 52 homers, you see it in a note, too. And the Phillies signed him 
all I remember hearing on Sports Talk Radio, they just gave him this huge ovation when they signed him. They welcomed him when he came here, and he couldn't believe it. Uh, I remember him going to construction sites with with an actual lunch pail and gave that lunch pail mental work ethic philosophy that it was bringing here to Philadelphia. Before he came here, the Phillies were not a very good team. Coming off 93, for the next several years, they were bad, really bad. I mean, we had Scott Long, we had Jimmy Rollins coming up, but the team was not in contention. They finally signed a legitimate star in Jim Tomey in our last year of the vet. And a lot of people, including myself, will say that was the launching pad right there that led us to 2008. And it's a shame he wasn't here to experience that. I mean, he's had two great seasons here with 5,247. 05, he comes in, he had some injuries. They had this kid in the minor leagues by the name of Ryan Howard that comes up and has a tremendous month of September. And then the rest was history. I mean, Ryan Howard was about 10, 12 years younger than Tommy. Tommy was gone on 34 years old. And But that was the, that was the start of the Phillies getting better was when Tommy got here. Um, he Cooter, Jimmy Rollins, Chase Utley was a young buck coming up. Ryan Howard was a rookie in 05. And Tommy left and continued his greatness, but he left <laughs> he left a, a stable mark on this team when when Phillies got into the playoffs. Then right after he left in 07 against the Rockies, and then they won the World Series in 08. But a lot of people, including myself, said that that kicked us off because we didn't really have any superstars on this team for a lot of years. And when he came over, that just ignited the city. Everybody loved him here. He was very, very well loved and liked in this town. I respect it. And that a lot of people will say that was the that was the moment that started this team to winning and having our best era in the history of this franchise was from 07 to about eleven. He started it. He he played the last year here at the bank and then started off Citizens Bank Ballpark and Tudor, Jimmy Rollins, and Chase Hartley, and Ryan Howard, and the rest was history. And it's a shame that he wasn't here to experience the World Series with Charlie Manuel. That would have been fantastic. But a lot of people, including myself, think that he kicked off that era. I agree with you. It was, um, you know, I was in college at the time, and I just remember that was the internet was still big on all the trade rumors and following the news, but it was before the Twitter kind of world that we live in now. So you would get information online, but you didn't get that instant information. And I do remember every day following every uh, every website, every message, everything you could find to get any bit of information. And when it happened, you almost you. You saw it happen, and it was going to happen. You were like, you had to flip on the news and get that official confirmation. It, it was unbelievably exciting. Uh, I was in college right. at the time, and I remember um, just it was like a celebration. It was almost like a, a postseason victory. Um, Jim Tomey, like a, a really well liked, uh, in our mind, a superstar player, uh, potential eventual Hall of Fame player, which he ended up being, um, that he chose to come to Philadelphia. It wasn't a trade. He chose to come here as a free agent. And it was unbelievable. And I, I remember the day he signed, um, uh, getting together with my dad and a couple of my brothers, we all went out for pizza. So we're sitting there going out to a pizza parlor, mm-hmm. eating pizza to celebrate Jim Tomey coming to Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, I, I still remember the goosebumps on opening day of 2003 at the vet, where that was the first time, you know, uh, in years since, you know, 93, that there was like that vibe in the ballpark. Cause like you said, the Phillies teams in the late nineties were, were pitiful, to be honest. They were horrendous. The electricity in the ballpark was amazing. He tripled in his first at-bat off the left field wall and just had that instant impact. Unfortunately, opening day 2003, Joe Roa gave up a grand slam to Reggie Sanders, then of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and uh, I think all in all, he gave up like 10 runs, so the Phillies lost that game 11-2 or 11-3 or something. That was the downfall of those Phillies teams was the fact that their pitching staff was not good. But uh, Tommy had an incredible impact on Philadelphia for those couple seasons. Like you said, he ended up getting injured. Um, Ryan Howard replaced him. And a lot of people thought, all right, Jim Tomey's 34. The Phillies are trading him. Does he have anything left in the tank? Went to Chicago, hit 42 homers, 35 homers, 34 homers, and then went on. And, yeah. you know, he was productive in Minnesota for a few years and then bounced around the last couple. 
Um, even came back to Philadelphia for a brief time, but Jim Tomey, just a great career. So, uh, oh, just, yeah. just definitely wanted to discuss that with you as a fellow, fellow Philadelphia fan, but we've been going on a little while about these guys that made it. And, uh, I do want to get into a little bit of the card aspect, the collectible aspect, um, talk a little bit about the added value, the added collectability of these players. And, uh, Mike, you are, uh, you specialize in collecting Hall of Fame players, so now you have four more along with the uh, Jack Morris and Alan Trammell, but you've you've known about them for a little while, so sure. you're probably settled up on those two. But these four here, what uh, what would you say are maybe the key rookie card for each of these four players, these new inductees to the Hall of Fame? Uh, well, Chippers uh, got several 91 cards. His probably most well-known are the 91 Tops and the 91 Bowman. Uh, ironically, in 91 Bowman, you also have Jim Tomey. Tomey also has a 91 Upper Deck Final Edition card, and Chipper has a 91 Upper Deck card as well, but it's like a top prospect kind of card. And they've all been, over the last few weeks, as it's kind of, there's the trackers out there now, and you can kind of know who's really on track and who's going to get in we've seen their rookie cards especially in high grades on the psa side really start to to go up crazy in value and that's true of all the hall of famers even all the guys that are even on the cusp and uh vlad guerrero his big rookie cards are in 1995 and you got a a base bowman card you can get or you got bowman bet bowman's best and then all the refractors that go with that they go for really what i would call crazy money and those are even just a base, his base Bowman's best card now in a nine or a 10 is 50, 60, a hundred dollars. It's uh surprisingly high. Can I and tell you a sad Hoffman, story about the Bowman's best Vladimir Guerrero yeah, sure. card? Yeah. So back in the mid nineties, I was collecting with my dad and um, we would open the stuff and he loved sending stuff back when we got damaged stuff. He, he was big on sending stuff back for replacement and I'm very confident he sent some Vladimir Guerrero rookie cards back for random replacement and not for <laughs> one for one replacement. So that's unfortunate. Oops. <laughs> right. Uh, and then for Hoffman, you've got uh, 92 Bowman. He's only got really one rookie card. It's 92 Bowman. And he's in a Reds uniform, ironically, in that. So you've got these, these sets that for me were big. Now you're having Hall of Fame rookie cards in them. And. That's just really makes me feel old, first of all, but uh, really just kind of neat, you know, to see these sets really start to gain some value because they have some great players in them. Yeah, it's really nice seeing some of the early 90s sets getting some of the attention that uh, maybe people don't pay to them. You know, you still have like the stigma of the whole junk wax era and, you know, 91, 92, that, that's still included in it. I don't think it's as bad as the late 80s, early, you know, maybe even 1990, but um, it it's really nice seeing attention drawn back to those cards. Ray, I know you picked up a Jim Tomey, 91 Bowman, Jim 10, uh, I want to say a year or two ago, and uh, you kind of pushed me to pick one up, and I did, thankfully, at the time. I forget exactly what I paid, but I think it was in the 25 to $35 range, which I know that card is uh, well above that now. You, uh, being very involved in set registries, you, uh, you seem to have an eye for kind of getting into cards at the right time. I know you did so with the Jose Altuve. So you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the Gem Mint 10 stuff? Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm also in the post-war rookie Hall of Fame set, and uh, I got involved with the future Hall of Fame set in, on PSA, and that's where I got the idea of picking out guys that had potentially to be in the Hall of Fame. So at the end of the election last year, I looked at the list, and they had you know, Chipper Jones in there, Jim Tony, Vladimir Guerrero, and I said, these guys are going to get in. I'm going to jump on the mail and just pick them up now before next year, which you know, I was lucky to do that. I didn't get the Trevor Hoffman, but, um, you know, this year I'm looking at guys like Omar Vizquel, who had a really good showing in his first year of eligibility. And, um, you know, there's quite a few other guys on that seven registry that that's where I get my inspiration and influence to figure out this is who I want to get before they go in and they jump up in value. Uh, as far as current players, 
you know, I just kind of follow the trend of look at their stats. And I don't jump on a player on their rookie year because they have a, they're having a phenomenal rookie year, uh, you know, like Cody Bellinger or Aaron Judge. I've always waited four or five years until I could see the player stats and compare them to see if they're going to get into the 3,000 hit club or the 500 home run club and see if they're on pace with guys who did get into those two clubs. So that's why I went into Trout a couple years ago at Altuve and guys like now Nolan Arenado and Chris Bryant because I'd look at their stats, but I don't jump on them very too early. I give it a few years, look at their numbers, make an assumption. But it's all speculative because a lot of the guys I bought back in the 80s and 90s that I thought were going to do good didn't do good. We all have experienced that. You know, I've invested into Will Clark and Kim Secco and Juan Gonzalez. A lot of those players that just didn't do it, but a lot more of the guys did do it, so that's good. But to touch back on the set registries, uh, it's been a, it's like crack. It's so addictive. You want to try and get as many cards of that set registry because it's uh, it's just fun and basically. And I'm in a, quite a few set registries with the 300 grade cards in the post war rookie Hall of Fame set are my top two. And uh, it, now the post war rookie Hall of Fame set has increased with four new guys, actually six with Trammell and Morris. It's fun to see the set registry grow each year. So it's been a lot of fun. I got to be honest with you, it's been great. <laughs> and there's no doubt that set registries have certainly added value to cards. There's no doubt it's it's brought attention. It's brought people who weren't integrating. Um, I like getting things graded. I just like the way they look in the slabs. I, I love the yeah. way the card um, pops in the slab. I like the fact that you're protecting the card. I do like the grade. Um, you know, you like knowing what condition the card is in, of course. Uh, but beyond that, there's so many people, you know, that are into the set registries. It's just an added element to the hobby. It's something else to do. It's something different to collect. It's a reason to maybe buy some cards that you wouldn't necessarily be looking at. And like you said, Mm -hmm. there's kind of that competitive uh, aspect of it as well. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely, and I know both of you guys are very much into the set registries. I, I've dabbled a little bit, but I'm uh, I'm an amateur set registry guy at this point. <laughs> well, I'm a I'm a certified crack addict, like uh, Ray's talking about, <laughs> and it is it does make you buy cards and look for cards that you normally wouldn't get. But I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it in a wow, this is really this is really cool to have a card of this player or whatever. And the top 300 has some weird stuff in it for sure that both Ray and I collect, but, you know, even if there's not a set registry, you can get behind, you know, both Ray and I have ideas of, hey, do uh, get the last card of every Hall of Famer in a in the highest grade you can, or get their second-year card if you can't afford their rookie. Look for their second-year card. Th- those ideas are just trying to get people to have something they can focus on and have fun with. Because it is a lot of fun. It's a hobby, right? And so whether you get it in some high grade or, or mid grade, just buy something you like and, and collect things you like, whether it's a team, a player. You know, Ray and I tend to gravitate towards kind of the greats of, of all time, Hall of Famers and stuff. But in reality, uh, we just li- love doing it. I love doing it. I love reading about the Hall of Famers. And to me, they're the best. And so that's why I collect them. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, uh, it's something, you know, that's just, I agree with you. You want to collect who you like, what you like, you know, you should do it for fun. I I do think there's an investment aspect of this hobby now, for sure. And it's something that helps drive the hobby. And I think it's important. I've told people before, you know, when I talk to people, I'm like, listen, you want to have a collection that has value. Um, you want it to have sentimental value to you. You want it to be something that makes you happy. But, you know, you don't want to collect something that nobody wants. You, you want to, you know, that, that makes you feel good if you look at your collection and go, you know what, this has some value. And if you're putting time, energy, effort, and money into it, you know, if something happens or, you know, something changes and you decide that you 
you know, need to move on from some of it or even all of it, you know, you want to have something that, again, has monetary value, but that shouldn't be the only aspect you're collecting. And I, you know, mm-hmm. collect players that, you know, I grew up watching. I collect teams. You just collect what you like. And it is pretty interesting now because over the last few years is really when Hall of Famers have start going in where I've, you know, actually seen guys' entire careers unfold. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting when I look back at Ken Griffey Jr. and some of these guys. And I'm like, man, I saw his entire career and now he's been retired five, six years. And now he's a Hall of Famer and all that. It's, uh, it's a great yeah. Hobby and it's a ton of fun. Baseball collectors and the Hall of Fame go hand in hand. Those baseball card collectors are very much in tune to the Hall of Fame because, like you said, it, I mean, it is fun, but there is an investment aspect of it. So you want your guys that you're investing cards in to go into the Hall of Fame because that will increase the value of the card. It's gonna, it gives you to feel like you have something that someone else doesn't have. So uh, I was telling my son this the other night. If you're a baseball card collector, you're very, very much in tune to the Hall of Fame because they go hand in hand. More so than in other sports, I would guess, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I I would agree with that in general. I mean, I don't follow hockey and basketball enough to even really know. But uh, even something like football, I don't know. I think it's based on the popularity. It's based on championships. You know, Hall of Fame is certainly nice, but they have such a different voting process. It's like five guys go in, or five or six, whatever it is, go in every year no matter what, which I think is a little silly. If eight guys are worth going in, they should go in. And if only two are worth going in, then that's who should go in. But it's a whole other topic that could go on for two hours. Uh, do want to talk about autographs real quick. Mike, I'll uh, direct this towards you because, you know, I know you're, you like collecting rookie cards and graded cards and set registries, but you're also very much into autographs. Similar to me, we're both big autograph collectors. So I want to ask you, do you have an autograph in your collection of these four new Hall of Famers that will be enshrined in a few months? Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> of course I do. But I have, um, not only do I have, you know, autos of each of them, several of each of them, but graded versions of each of them too. Uh, PSA DNA certified slash graded autos. And I would say that is the if you were to say what's the one part of your collection that you're most proud of and that you it kind of would be the last thing to get sold off if you had to and it would it would be my Hall of Famer autograph collection because I've amassed almost 1800 Hall of Famer autographs in my collection. I have 228 different players, executives, etc., umpires. And so <clears throat> it's you know when you get to this level it, it it's both a really expensive to add things you need but really fun in times like this because these new people come in, you're like, oh, I get to add a Hall of Famer, and I don't have to go spend an arm and a leg or a mortgage payment to uh, to add them. And so it's really fun this time of year. Uh, all of these guys have autographs that are you can get them uh, relatively cheap. Uh, none of them are over a hundred dollars for sure, unless you're going over something, you know, either a graded rookie card, you know, autographed rookie card, or some type of very low numbered card, you can find their stuff pretty easily. Chipper is probably the most expensive of them. Chipper has a very loyal collecting following. And so he, uh, his stuff just goes for a lot more money. And Tommy's surprising. He doesn't have a ton of stuff out there, but he, his prices still kind of are under the radar. Um, and you know this, Mike, you know, when you've, you've been able to pick up some Tommy autographs recently that I've watched and I, I doubt you paid a ton for them. But I bet they are higher than that you would have thought they would have been. And uh, like Mike, do you have uh, do you have Ginters of all the guys? By the way, I don't have any autographs of Trevor Hoffman at this point in my collection. But I did jump on a Chipper Jones Ginter about a year and a half ago. Someone had one up on eBay that was already authenticated and slabbed, and uh, that was definitely something that I wanted to add to the collection. And I kind of badgered the guy for quite a while. I would make offers that I thought was very fair. Uh, and he would reject them or sometimes counter what I thought was a little high. So I'd go back and forth and give him, give him a few low balls here and there as well. But uh, eventually we worked out a deal, and I was really excited to add that to the collection. And then Vladimir Guerrero I had also picked up at one point, and I actually got that one at a steal. Uh, and Tommy, uh, Tommy was a must for the Allen and Ginter collection, specifically one in a Phillies uniform, and that was something that I was uh, really focused on. 2017 Topps Archive Signature Series, it, it's a product where they 
do all buybacks to their autographs, so it's a unique opportunity sometimes to get autographs of players on cards that you really want, and you get them at a much cheaper price than, say, if you were to go to a signing or something. So they did make a Tomy in the Phillies uniform, and I was able to grab that, and I was absolutely thrilled with that one. My advice kind of to people would be, look, there's a lot of hype right now on these players, and if you're looking to acquire an autograph of them, I'd be very patient. Um, what tends to happen through my experience is that you have this huge run and a lot of stuff is available. A lot of it goes for relatively high money. And if you wait a couple of months into, you know, basically till basically the start of the season, March or April, that's probably a good, unless you just want to spend a lot of money, if you can be patient and wait, the prices will come back down. Everything will get kind of more normal. Then you'll have another period around induction time in July when it'll everything will run back up again. And so if you're if you're really patient and want to wait, you need to wait about nine to ten months, and then you can get stuff really cheap again. There's no reason you should spend more than twenty bucks on a Trevor Hoffman autograph, but you will right now, and you will again in July. So if you, if you, if you're looking to add these players, I would just say be patient. Don't be in a hurry. You'll get them, but you need to start looking ahead. Mariano stuff's going to start going nuts. Edgar stuff's going to get expensive again, especially next year. Halliday stuff is going to get expensive. So just be aware of that and kind of know what's going on and watch stuff. And if you, if you want to get into Hall of Fame autographs, you can get a lot for a lot of the guys for reasonable money. And so just be patient. So I was going to talk a little bit about whether you thought there was anyone who got snubbed in 2018. But um, for time purposes, because we've been going on a while, we'll just jump right into looking ahead a little bit at 2019, 2020, maybe even 2021. And, you know, this definitely includes these guys who didn't quite make it this year. If you look at the Hall of Fame class, a potential class for next year, the ballot, really, in my opinion, the only two first ballot guys uh, who I think even have a chance are who you mentioned, Mariana Rivera, who I believe is a straight-up lock. And then Roy Halladay, who I'd like to see him in there. I think the circumstances, the unfortunate circumstances from this year may garner him some more votes. You know, I don't know with the whole first ballot thing or not, but I think they're the only two who I really see as having a chance going in next year out of, you know, the first year class, which should open the doors for some of these guys who didn't quite make it. Ray, uh, what what are your thoughts uh, looking ahead to next year? Who are some guys that you think are most likely going to get in. And if you think they're going to get in, that would maybe it's a good time to start looking at picking up some of their cards before the hype really gets uh, going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Mariano, that's a lock. Um, I don't think Roy will get in on the first year, and I'll tell you why. I think there's they've been doing a good job lately, the Hall of Fame, on cleaning the slate, cleaning up and getting some guys in that have been waiting a while. Uh, and I think we're getting towards the end and close to the end of some guys that have been waiting. Uh, Edgar Martinez is going, will be going into his last year next year. So that, in my opinion, will probably be Mariano and Edgar. And then other guys that I think will get in before Roy Holiday could be Mike Mussina and Kurt Schilling uh, because they've been in the election ballot now for quite a few years. Mike Mussina has over 270 wins, I think. Kurt Schilling has about 218, 219. He's in the 3,000 strikeout club. Um, I do think, you know, and Mussina got a lot of votes this year. I think he was at 70%. And Schilling was, Schilling finally increased this year. So I, I think Halliday will be someone between year two and four. I do think he will get in. I just don't think um, a first-year ballot. But guys that I think people should be looking at in the real, real near future, Mariano Rivera, which is rookie card, is 92 Bowman. Edgar Martinez, which is 88 Fleer. And I would also look at Mike Messina and Kirk Schilling. And um, I think you've seen as 91 ultra update and showing 89 dollars. Take a look at those guys. And it, and it doesn't hurt to, to, to try and grab the Roy Halliday too, because you never know. You could get in a lot sooner. And I think he was 97 Bowman Chrome. So it's for next year. I think you're looking at those guys. And then in 2019, or after that, it's going to be Derek Jeter. And the biggest shocker to me of the whole thing yesterday was seeing Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds kind of staying the same. They did go up, but they only went up 3%, which is a telltale sign that they might not get in. I mean, they had a huge jump last year. They went up from, they went up about 10, 12%. So they were trending upward, but I can't see the whole thing putting Bonds and Clemens in 
with a classy guy, a charming guy like a Mario Mariano Rivera, and I don't see Bonds and Clemens going in the year that Jeter goes in. That's why I mean, like I've talked about this and predicted, in my opinion, I do think eventually they will get in, but it probably won't be until 2021. So I, now's the time actually to try and look at Bonds and Clemens uh, because they're still a couple of years away. You don't want to wait too long on them. So that's what's um, that's what I think is coming up in the horizon for the Hall of Fame. Mike, what are uh, what are some of your thoughts on guys who uh, you think will get in in a few years? Because a lot of these guys you can get cheap autographs of. Mariano Rivera is very expensive. I don't follow his market like big time, but I do look at the Allen and Ginter uh, autos of him because that's kind of what I try and specialize in terms of autographs. And I know they're ridiculous, as in like a hundred. $50 um, is what the asking price generally is. But uh, a guy like Roy Halladay, if, even if it takes him a year or two to get in, he's not a guy who signed a ton of autographs. So he, he's someone that when his accident happened, his prices obviously spiked like crazy. And they've come down a little bit. They're still, they're not super cheap, but um, they're a little more affordable now. But when talk of the Hall of Fame comes in, I, I think you would see them rise, uh, rise a little bit because people who make Hall of Fame autograph sets and such, you're only going to have so many that you can choose from. I agree. Halliday's going to be a Hall of Famer. Let's let's just put that to rest right now. It's going to be a question of what year he gets in. And I I think Messina gets in next year for sure. Uh, I think everything Ray said was, was incredibly on point. But I think Halliday might sneak in next year. Um, that would be the only thing that I might disagree with Ray on. Other than that, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if Halliday doesn't get in. But he'll get in. Uh, if he doesn't get in next year, I think he'll get in with uh, Jeter in 19. So, or 20, I'm sorry, 2020. So, but I thought Ray handled that question very well. So, good, good job, job, Ray. Ray. Oh, thank you. So, what about these guys that are still kind of bouncing around? Uh, are they, any of these. I'm going to rattle off a few names for you, Mike. Are these guys legitimately going to get in the Hall of Fame at some point? Uh, Larry Walker. Yes. I mean, he's he's getting close to that 10-year mark. You think he's... Uh, yeah, but he's, so he's a Veterans Committee guy. No, he will, but he'll be a Veterans so Committee guy. So we'll have to wait a little while for him. What about I'll Coach? tell you yes or no, and I'll tell you Riders or Veterans Committee right. what I think. All right, let's so just go, go, keep going. Let's go down the list then. We'll just start with Clemens and Bonds. You know, you guys yes. kind of went over that and said 2021. Do you, you guys you guys think they're getting voted in 2021? They enough, have to. It, enough people will uh, change their mind or just decide to get it done and over with they have to that way if they don't get in through the they're not getting in through the veterans committee because the former players will not vote them in who is the veterans committees are primarily made up of, of hall of fame players and so it they either get in by 2021 or they're not getting in at all and i think that's i think the the sentiment will shift enough by then that you will see them get to 75 but that's my opinion what about kurt Schilling? Yeah. Uh, yes Yes, by the writers, too. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Philly's fan, but Kurt Schilling, it still astonishes me that he doesn't get a little more support. I mean, that guy was ridiculous how good he was, um, not just during the course of his career. I mean, he only had the 216 wins, but, you know, we're no longer necessarily in the 300-win era, even though a few guys in his generation did. His ERA, his strikeouts, 3,000 strikeouts, and his incredible postseason accomplishments. Because I'm a kind of look at it, and I, I definitely think postseason um, dominance should be very much added on uh, when you consider the Hall of Fame, specifically when you do it multiple times. I mean, 1993, which gets forgotten about, he was the NLCS MVP, was incredible. And then he goes to Arizona. Him and Randy Johnson win a World Series, and I believe he was co-MVP, and then had success in Boston. Incredible big game pitcher. Uh, I mean, the guy just had a phenomenal career, and uh, I do think it's unfortunate that non-baseball related stuff seemingly does have an effect on him because I think we can all agree he kind of talks a little too much and that's his right and that's fine but uh, I think that gets held against him a little more than it should. How many Cy Youngs did Kurt Schilling win? None. None. That's but he was second three times which is saying a lot uh, whereas a guy like Johan Santana who's off the ballot now forever uh, won two and didn't even get a sniff so 
look, Kurt Schilling's going to be in the Hall of Fame, uh, but he's going to be uh, it's going to be a couple of years, I think. So keep going with your list. Do we think Omar Vizquel's getting in? I do. Now, I would have said no before all this started. Uh, I would have laughed at the idea, quite frankly. And from what I'm seeing, it wow, he's got a really good shot of making it in five or six years. I don't think it's going to be uh, soon. But he's. I think he's only going to gain momentum as people keep talking about him. So. Yeah, I tend to agree that he will get in 2,800 hits. Great defensive shortstop. I don't. A lot of people like to compare him to Ozzie Smith, and I don't know that he had the star power of Ozzie Smith. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but like as a kid growing up when Ozzie Smith was playing, I, I know you look at his offensive career statistics, but I just remember kids and people talking about him all the time. I, I think that. Obviously helped Ozzy a little bit, along with postseason yeah. success. But we'll yeah, see. I think Omar Vizquel will get in. They're comparing they're comparing Vizquel to, uh, as as a defensive shortstop, and they're comparing him to Luis Aparicio and Ozzy Smith as they got in strictly for defense. Omar Vizquel was a great defensive player, but also was better offensively than Aparicio than Ozzy Smith. And he played in Seattle, I understand that, but he had a great showing of, say, 37%. The only thing that scares me is that Edgar Martinez, his first year, had the same exact first year as Omar Vizquel with 37%, and his second year dropped all the way down to 22%. And people are like, oh, that's it, Edgar's done. But then they started this rally cry for Edgar Martinez, deservedly so. He's crept up little by little. So I'm hoping to see that he continues to climb next year because I don't know if he's going to get the same support that Edgar's gotten in the past few years. I'm afraid that if Omar drops next year, that could be it. If he continues to climb, then I, I do think he'll get in, and I think he should get in. What about Fred McGriff? Is he uh, is he toast? He's toast. He's going to get in on the veterans, though, for sure. But he's... Um, he's- and deservedly he, so. He doesn't have enough support to get in next year, I wouldn't think. He's still only about no. 23%. Yeah, he only made it 23.2. So, yeah, he's not even, he's not going to get it next year. But That's amazing. <laughs> which is amazing, yes. Jeff Kent, too. Jeff Kent should be a Hall of Famer. Best second baseman, offensive second baseman ever, uh, you could argue. He, never, he only won one MVP. Joe Morgan won two. But if I'm going to pick a second baseman that I want on my team, Jeff Kent's my guy. And... <laughs> You know, uh, defensive liability, okay, fine, but uh, could still, you know, he didn't boot every ball that came to him. And to me, Jeff Kent, absolutely deserving Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's the all-time leader for second baseman for home runs. More than Morgan, more than Sandberg. <laughs> so, but he he's getting job the same way Schilling's getting job because of personality issues, and it's more of a personal reason. And Jeff Kent's getting absolutely nothing. Fred McGriff, 493 homers, is just, he's a total Veterans Committee guy. And uh, it's a shame because that was a level of consistency of 30. I think he had 10 30-plus homer seasons. And uh, he was on that Braves team, too. And he he will get in, but I don't think he'll be voted in. What's stunning about Jeff Kent is he won an MVP award in he twice in his career led the league in a category, and it was sacrifice flies twice. Which is kind of surprising. But, and yeah. do you know who he hit behind? You know who he protected in the lineup? Mr. Barry Bonds in that uh, NL champion yep. year. That's right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he had such a weird career because he really didn't come on until his late 20s. I guess that doesn't really help him. He played during the steroid era, but the, like, that's the problem with the steroid era. People just make Frown judgments on, on – Yeah, but people make judgments on who did it, who – you know, we sort of know who did it a little bit and – we have ideas and people kind of assume certain guys didn't do it. So it's kind of tough to, um, to do that, uh, too much, but yeah, he, Jeff Kent really doesn't get, uh, get a whole lot of support. All right. Just go through a few more guys real quick. Uh, Gary Sheffield gets no support. He's at 11% hit 500 homers. Um, I, I don't think he's ever getting voted in by the writers at least. So, and I don't know if he's a veterans committee guy at all either. Nope. No, he's a no on both, which kind of is sad, really. Uh, Gary Sheffield deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. A feared hitter, uh, just viciously swung the bat and just crushed the ball all the time. And uh, certainly is, is a Hall of Famer player, had a Hall of Fame career. He will never get voted in, in my opinion, and he will not make any Veterans Committee. He'll never get elected that way either. So that's sad. 
Ray, uh, what are your thoughts on both Billy Wagner and Scott Rowland, two guys who spent some time in Philadelphia? I think Billy Wagner is going to be the, after Mariano, I think he'll, he'll be the next relief pitcher to get in. Um, I mean, Trevor Hoffman had more saves than Billy Wagner, but Billy Wagner had a better strikeout per walk ratio, strikeouts per nine innings, uh, better ERA. He was just a, a great pitcher. Yeah, he came here. That was another big signing for the Phillies when we got Wagner. We needed that closer to help solidify our bullpen. And, you know, I never forget when they put up 100 miles per hour on the clock here at the vet and we're in Philadelphia and people were just blown away that we had that, we had that closer coming in. Scott, Scott Rowland, you know, I love Scott. Scott Rowland, he, he kind of took the place of Schmidt. You know, we, we did have Charlie Hayes for a little bit there in between, but Scott Rowland, I, I followed his career from when he was in, in, in the minor leagues and I've read articles on Scott Rowland that he was compared to Schmidt defensively and he was, and he came up and was a, a phenomenal fielder, could smack the ball around. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that he's still on the ballot and he got a pretty decent amount of support. I think he was about 10 or 12% of the votes. I don't think he's going to get in. <clears throat> and I'm not sure if he even gets in on veterans committee, but it's like, I'm glad that he'll at least remain on the ballot for a little while and have at least some discussion, which that's what the whole thing is about. If he remains above 5%, which he did, he's going to remain on to at least have some discussion and looked at a little bit more seriously. And I, I loved him. I thought he was a really great player. But I do think Wagner has a better shot to get in down the road. But the Scott Rowland, you know, he went to St. Louis. I mean, you look at his place defensively, and you're just like, wow, this guy really could field and was a good hitter, really good power hitter. And uh, we'll see. I'm not too confident on Scott Rowland getting in. But at least he's going to he's leaving the door open for a wide open discussion to at least have people look a little bit more in depth into his career. It'll be interesting to see what happens with these guys, because Billy Wagner, I remember a friend of mine uh, actually did a report on how great he was as a left handed reliever. And you look at his career ERA and some of those numbers. So if he gets in at some point nearly 1200 strikeouts in 900 innings, I, I don't have a problem with it. But watching his career, he was a really good reliever. He threw the ball yep. really hard, but in all honesty, I don't know if I really felt like he was a Hall of Fame pitcher. Maybe it's bad memories of watching him blow a couple big games with the Phillies, specifically against Houston, and knowing that he actually had a lot of trouble in the postseason. Not that that should invalidate an incredible career, but he didn't seem to come up huge in those huge moments for me. He never led the league in saves, so I have no problem if he gets in at some point, but I'm, he's one of those I kind of shrug my shoulders uh, type of guys. And Scott Rowland, like you, watched his career. My favorite moment of his career, though, was in 2010 when Roy Halladay no-hit uh, his Cincinnati Reds in the postseason. But uh, Rowland actually had a really good career, and I, I never really thought of him as a Hall of Famer, you know, at any real point. And I saw he was on the ballot, and I saw a few people make a case for him. And it kind of swayed my opinion a little bit. And again, it's not one of those guys that I think's a lock Hall of Famer, but I know his 855 OPS plus people were talking about how good that is compared to other Hall of Fame third basemen. Um, and I'm not really into all those secondary statistics, but I do think back on what an incredible uh, defensive talent he was. And we talk about guys like Omar Vizquel, um, guys like that, and that's when I start to think about a guy like Scott Rowland. I go, you know what, if he's really a top five third baseman defensively, and he had a solid offensive career, that's when you have to at least give him a thought and keep him on the ballot a while. But we'll uh we'll get Mike's opinion on Roland and Wagner and see if uh if we're just kind of Philly biased on those guys. Well you're not you're not Philly biased on Billy Wagner, because uh, he had a good career with Philly but only two seasons, so I'll, I'll give you that one. Uh but his ERA was two thirty one for his career. Oh, that's Insane. incredible. Yes, yeah, his, his numbers you, overall are incredible. But then you look at in eight, 14 appearances in the postseason, his ERA is over 10. So I think that for any player, and especially a relief pitcher, when you have a small sample size in the postseason, if, if Schilling's postseason really helps him, I think that's legit. But for a pitcher to be penalized for a bad postseason, I think is unnecessary. I think you just kind of just forget about it and you go, what did you do? It can help you for sure. Having a great postseason record like Schilling can help, but I don't think it will hurt Billy Wagner's overall uh, status as a Hall of Famer at some point. Scott Rowland, sorry guys, not a Hall of Famer. Uh, Hall of Very Good and 
glad he's on the ballot, but a, a little bit more. But sorry, that's a little silliness. <laughs> he's just not in that caliber uh, to to be considered a Hall of Famer for third baseman. So definitely, ironically, at a career war higher than the average. But I'm not. I'm like you, Mike. I never watched his career and went, man, this is one of the greatest third basemen I've ever seen. Uh, like I do right now with Adrian Beltre. I watch Adrian Beltre play, and I'm like, this is one of the greatest guys I've ever seen play this position. I felt that way about Mike Schmidt. So just didn't feel that way about Scott Rowland. Konerko's another guy like that. You know, no, good, but not good enough. That says something from someone who's a self-proclaimed uh, big hall guy. That's right. <laughs> All right. Um, just want two more thoughts you guys can both answer. Um, there's a lot of debate on Andrew Jones, who's another guy who is well-known as a great defensive center fielder. Some people like to put him up as the greatest, one of the greatest center fielders. At the same time, he's a guy who had some hustle issues during the course of his career out in the outfield. Uh, offensively, over 400 homers, had a 50 homer season. You know, he probably could have got to 500 if he could have played, you know, another four or five years. He's a guy who came up at 19, made a huge impact in the postseason with the Braves. Either of you guys think Andrew Jones deserves another look, or do you think he is a yes or a no? Uh, I'm a, I'm a teetering on Andrew Jones. Um, he only defensively, had yeah, I heard, in his career. yeah. I mean, defensively, I heard tremendous things. I, they they said that back in that era when he played, you would see the spectacular plays by like guys like Jim Edmonds. Well, that's because they didn't have a beat on the ball like Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones never had to make that kind of play because he was so far in advance, way better than Edmonds. He didn't have to make the spectacular play. He got a better jump and he was faster. So all his plays looked easy, whereas Jim Edmonds had to make these over-the-shoulder diving catches. And other players during that time were like, wow, look at that play. And Andrew Jones just made it look easily because he had such a beat on the ball. Uh, offensively, I was surprised he did hit over 400 homers. The average is a little low. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, he stayed in the 5.4%, so he's going to remain on the ballot. So maybe he's a Veterans Committee guy in 10 years. I don't know. I'm teetering on him. I just can't make up my mind yet on Andrew Jones. So I wouldn't have a problem if he got in. Uh, the numbers aren't terrible, but uh, if I, I would lean a little bit more towards no, probably not a Hall of Famer. I would call him the Dale Murphy of his era. Probably, uh, yeah. And Dale Murphy was, you know, back-to-back MVPs, great player, lots of homers, similar home run numbers, I think, honestly. And uh, just... Not quite enough. Jones had the one really good season, right? He hit 51 home runs, and like 128 RBIs in 05. But other than that, he was he was very good. He was good. He's got to be great. And the, fi- yep. the final guy we're going to talk about real quick, because this is by far the longest podcast I've recorded, uh, but it's been a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, he's up, I think he's two years away, maybe a little similar to... Mr. Larry Walker, we got Todd Helton coming up soon. He's next year. Next is he, year. Is he next year? He's yeah. uh, played 17 years, had 2,500-plus hits, 369 home runs, 316 career batting average, which is obviously phenomenal. But one of the things that I think probably hurts Larry Walker a little bit, whether people agree with it or not, is the home road splits. And you look at Todd Helton, had 4,800 plate appearances at home, 4,600 away. He hit 345 at Coors Field, and he hit 287 on the road. Um, and you would suspect people would play better at home, but uh, you know he's another guy who has you know he's not like a 10 or 15 point differential. He's he's a guy who's you know almost 60 points difference in terms of batting average, and has an additional 80 home runs at home, uh, 300 and plus RBIs. So, do you guys think uh, Todd Helton is someone who will get in? to the hall of fame yes or no or you know even if it's yes is he a guy who has to wait almost 10 years or maybe even a veterans committee guy well i'm a no he had five good years and they were all at the beginning of his career and after age 30 his production declined tremendously even at coors field and so his batting average stayed relatively high but he never played full seasons he was hurt all the time and he just doesn't pass the test and different than Larry Walker, I think. Larry Walker had a lot more um, just, just big stats. You know, he won just batting titles and lots of hits. And just, just they were different. And 
look, a player can't help where he plays his home games. It's not Todd Helton's fault that he got drafted by Colorado and played in Colorado. It's not Larry Walker's fault that he played some of his career in Colorado, or a lot of it, actually. But what do you get? You know, you see, do you take that into consideration? Yeah. Do you blame the player for it? How can you? It's not their fault. They, that's where they play. But you have to look at the numbers, and Helton just didn't do it long enough. Didn't do the the really, really good for a long enough period. Ray, what do you think? I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, neither. And I think a lot of it does have to do with where he played. I mean, I know it's not his fault, but it can't help to think that the numbers were inflated because of where he played. I don't, I don't think Todd Helton, to me, or Larry Walker is a Hall of Famer. I, I, don't, I just don't say it. I think they're very, very good players, but I don't see Todd Helton as a Hall of Famer. Walker won three batting titles, an MVP, a uh, five-time All-Star, I think, two, three, four, five, seven gold gloves. Walker was pretty darn good. Uh, but I look, look at the total numbers and 2,100 hits, you know, it's, I don't know. Helton's got 2,500 hits, I think 2,600, but Walker at 2,160 hits is, uh, I yeah, don't know. okay, I can, I understand, I get it. I think that's one of the great things about the Hall of Fame is it's always up for debate. A lot of it is opinion-based until the guys vote and who gets in gets in, and the others are just guys who may eventually get in. But uh, the Hall of Fame is uh, obviously an an incredible uh, thing to follow. It's a great way to uh, collect if you're into collectibles, and um, the Hall of Fame is a special place. So if you've never found your way to Cooperstown, New York, I highly suggest you do so. If you enjoyed this podcast, please uh, be sure to subscribe. You can get it on iTunes free of charge. You can go ahead and get it over on SoundCloud, and it's always published on my YouTube channel, which is Mike O. You go on YouTube, type in Mike O, it will pop up. My guests today, Mike and Ray, you guys are both on YouTube. You have uh, very fun channels, great collections. A ton of fun to watch, follow, and uh, you inform the community uh, a great deal. So uh, it's definitely my pleasure to uh, have you on the show. I really enjoy following your channels. You guys can take turns and just uh, kind of give your channel name where people can find you and uh, talk for a brief minute or so about your channel. Uh, well, people can reach me on YouTube. Uh, my name on YouTube is Ray from Philly. And a lot of my channel consists of PSA set registry baseball cards. A lot of different sets that I'm in. The 300 great baseball cards by Mike Payne. The post-war rookie Hall of Fame. And I'm doing a 33 Gallaty Hall of Fame set. Um, so they come and check me out. And uh, I'm sure it'll have a lot of fun watching the channel. And if they're interested in great vintage cards, you know, it's the channel to be. And uh, you can find me. I'm Baseball Collector. A more appropriate name has never been had. And uh, I collect Hall of Fame, mainly graded cards from all different types of reasons, with set registries being a primary focus, including the 300 great baseball cards by Mike Payne. Hall of Fame post-war rookies, uh, tons of autographs, and just a myriad of things. Hopefully, I, I can provide a nice variety. I even build custom uh, baseball card cases with my dad <laughs> and have a great time doing that and just showing off how I uh, display my collection and organize everything and love just talking about the hobby. And it, it's a wonderful hobby that we're all a part of and get to be a part of. And I'm just uh, glad to know you guys. And thanks for letting us be a part of this, Mike. No problem. Definitely happy to have you. Uh, thank you, everyone, again for listening. Really appreciate it. Be back as soon as I can with another edition of Hobby Talk with Mike O. Can't wait to uh, continue to talk to all those out there involved in this great hobby of collecting sports memorabilia and trading cards. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.